It seems to me there's something wrong with a president who carves people up who have who have dedicated their time and, and months trying to help him, uh, and, and he rips them to shreds as they go out the door. That's why the White House was such a snake pit under Trump. Uh, but I think it's what it reflects is that uh, he doesn't have a philosophy. He doesn't think in strategic terms. He doesn't even think in what we conventionally call policy. Everything is about Donald Trump. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis in London. Ever wonder what really happens in the White House, in the Oval Office, where decisions which shape the world are taken by a select few? Some of them brilliant, a lot of them not. You could argue the most critical input comes through the National Security Advisor. He plays a critical role in the administration of the National Security Council, the NSC, which advises and assists the president on national security and foreign policy issues. President Trump knows something about business, commercial real estate, and serving his self-interests. He's famous for that. But on the world stage, he needed John Bolton to tell him what was at stake with Iran, China, Russia, Afghanistan, to name a few. Trump probably didn't learn much, he never seemed to have a clear philosophical belief in the world and America's role in it, unlike many presidents before him. But his former national security advisor sure did and does. And he's written a book called The Room Where It Happened, a White House Memoir. This week, John Bolton on Backstory talks to me about Trump and his character, democracy, and foreign policy challenges waiting for incoming President-elect Joe Biden. All right, joining me now from Washington, Ambassador John Bolton. He's the former National Security Advisor for President Trump. Hi, John. Hi, glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. I was listening to President Trump discussing you um, at a town hall meeting, and it was pretty insulting. Uh, you don't smile. By the way, you're smiling now. <laughs> um, you, you know, you're sick, you want to bomb everybody. Why is, and I'm not going to ask you to respond to any of that, and I'm sorry to mention it, but, but can you give me some insight into why Trump is so nasty and smears anyone uh, who has worked for him? It seems to me there's something wrong with a president who carves people up, who have, who have dedicated their time and, and months trying to help him, uh, and, and he rips them to shreds as they go out the door. Yeah. Well, I, I can say that what he does in public, he does in private, too. I, I remember and I recount in my book when when I was with him alone in the Oval Office on some occasion within a few weeks after joining the administration. And he started criticizing Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and other people to me. And uh, I didn't really know how to respond. And But it occurred to me shortly after I left the Oval Office that if he's criticizing them to me, he's gonna be criticizing me to them too. And I think that it's uh, it obviously doesn't make for a good working relationship. It's why the White House was such a snake pit under Trump. Uh, but I think it's what it reflects is that uh, he doesn't have a philosophy. He doesn't think in strategic terms. He doesn't even think in what we conventionally call policy. Everything is about Donald Trump. And therefore everything in his relations with people is personal. So if you disagree with him on the Middle East, uh, it's a disagreement with him personally. And, and I think that's what produces this kind of uh, insult. 
It really wonders, makes you wonder about moral compass, because in the book you talk about possible sanctions discussed on China and the detention of millions of Muslims and human rights, the clampdown on China, and you got nowhere with Trump. Right. Well, I think he's completely amoral as well. I mean, while we're talking about the good points of Donald Trump, let's not let's not forget that either. Um, and uh, look, uh, international relations is tough business. Uh, but at least uh, if you're going to denigrate uh, human rights with, to about China, you ought to get something from the Chinese. Hillary Clinton, on her first visit as secretary of state to China, said, I'm not going to bother him about human rights. She said it publicly. It was a mistake. Uh, I don't even think she believed it necessarily, but that's what she was hearing from the State Department. Uh, with Trump, it's purely transactional, purely transactional. Trump's lawyers have lost or withdrawn over 30 legal cases. Um, one judge said strain legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations. You have said, and I watched you on some of the political programs over the weekend, this is not a legal argument anymore. But can I ask you, what is it then? Well, I think it's raw political power. Uh, nothing that Trump has presented as a matter of law has succeeded. And, and, and I'm an old campaign finance lawyer. I spent 33 days in Florida in 2000 when Gore challenged Bush. So I've been around this track before. He has no evidence of fraud. Uh, he hasn't presented any uh, systematic uh, uh, evidence to any court he's been before. Uh, just yesterday, he fired uh, Sidney Powell. Uh, who was the sort of most alarmist, most conspiracy theorist minded of his uh, lawyers, but but not the only one. Uh, so now what he's trying to do is intimidate state elections boards. Uh, right now in Michigan, they're deciding what to do there. But on Friday, he called the uh, House and Senate Republican leaders of the Michigan General Assembly to Washington. Mm -hmm. This is like King Kong and, and rabbits getting together to have a discussion about politics. He was clearly trying to muscle them. I'm sure these are good people. And they came away and issued a statement that I read as saying we resisted what Trump wanted. But he's trying to bully his way to a conclusion that I'm not even sure he knows what it is. I can't really believe he thinks he can yet win. But I think uh, he still hasn't reconciled himself to it. So he's going to do as much damage as he can. You don't think he's reconciled himself to it? Well, I think the way it will end is that, you know, he will leave the White House, but he will not have lost because why? That would make him a loser, which is the worst word in Trump's vocabulary. So the he won't have lost the election. It will have been stolen from him. He will say that till the day he dies. All right. Well, that, I mean, that presents some real challenges, Dan, because I know everybody in America right now is focused on the January inauguration, the January 20th inauguration. But it creates a lot of challenges beyond that, doesn't it? I mean, if he has convinced so many Republican voters uh, that, that the election was stolen from them, it looks like he's not going to go away. He's still talking about 2024. Will Biden be able to actually function very well if he's standing there sniping and blocking uh, and, and constantly undermining the legitimacy of the commander in chief. I mean, I guess that happened to him. Uh, and we can talk about the grounds for that in another conversation when I have more time with you. But obviously, it's going to be tough on Biden. Trump is not going to suddenly disappear. No, I, I think the graver trouble, though, is for the tens of millions of people who believe what Trump is telling him, that the election was stolen when it manifestly was not. That's why I've been calling on Republican leaders to stand up and say, 
there was no steal, there was no fraud. And it's caused me to think about the importance of a candidate's concession speech. Uh, and in this case, why we always count on the outgoing president to accompany the new president to the inauguration on the 20th of January. No, nobody likes to lose an election, not the candidate, not his supporters. But the concession speech is, in effect, the candidate saying, as much as this pains me, I can live with it, meaning supporters, you should live with it too. And especially in the case of a defeated incumbent and the victorious challenger appearing together, it says, this is the right thing to do for the country. If Trump skips but they're that, not doing that. They're not doing that. If, if he well, that's exactly right. If he doesn't give a concession speech, if he doesn't go to the inauguration, that is the kind of damage I really fear. And but Republicans are not standing up. And I mean, they're slowly you're starting to see some of the dominoes fall here. But in general, why have they not stood up? Is it because they don't want to bite the electric, the, 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 the voters who supported President Trump in this election because they need them in the future? Or is it because they fear the presidency? Well, a lot of them fear a Twitter rant from the president. There's no doubt about it. And there's some argument that just let him go on, let him rave and rant for a while. He'll calm down and accept it. I, I can tell you from my own personal experience, I don't think that's going to happen. So what I and others have been saying is, for precisely those Trump supporters who listen to him and who believe the election has been stolen, they need to hear another narrative. They need to hear the truth from Republican leaders. And I, I'm not saying this to, to be virtuous. I'm saying it as a matter of cold, hard political reality for Republicans. This will hurt us in the future if we don't confront reality now. Well, I've spent a career, uh, you know, reporting in different places where elections are not free and they're not fair. Um, and if you're able to convince voters in, a, in America that the election was stolen from them, I can't imagine what that means for the future of democracy there. Look, I, I really appreciate being able to talk to you because there are a few people I know that know as much about the world as you do. And I want to ask you, Ambassador Bolton, first of all, about Iran. Uh, you dramatically made the point that the Iran deal was completely unenforceable, unverifiable. Um, you know that Biden is going to re-sign re the NPT, it looks like, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, will Iran be able to make a bomb? Well, I think they've made a lot of progress toward it. And I think, honestly, one of the worst parts of the 2015 nuclear deal was we, we really could not verify exactly what their program was, despite the contentions of the supporters of the deal. We don't know whether they're leasing uranium enrichment capabilities under a mountain in North Korea, for example. Uh, I think, uh, though, that Biden and his team will find it a lot more difficult to get back into that deal than they anticipate because of Iran's conduct, in part, that was enabled by the $120, $150 billion of assets that were turned over to Iran and the economic progress they made after the sanctions were lifted. Uh, Look, uh, the the uh, geography of the Middle East has shifted. The United Arab Emirates and Bahrain have recognized Israel. Uh, the prime minister of Israel has just met with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and they are brought together by their fear of Iran, not just the nuclear weapons, but the support for terrorism. So the Middle East is a different place today, 15 days, five years after the nuclear deal, and Biden's going to have to deal with that. You mentioned that we were, we were unable to verify whether Iran was abiding by the non-proliferation treaty. 
let's talk about Russia. I mean, there is a start uh, agreement that has been in place. It's been highly successful. It's verifiable. Um, and you, you, you under uh, President Trump wanted to back out of it and you wanted to walk away from start. What was the wisdom in that? And you know that Biden will probably sign it the next day to try and extend it. Well, it, he would make a mistake if he extended it for the full five years to maintain. I mean, I'm just speaking of his position now to maintain his negotiating leverage with the Russians. He only ought to extend it for one year. Uh, I was against New START in 2010 for several reasons. The first was it did not take into account tactical nuclear weapons. Of which, uh, which there are a, thousands. Right, which is a much graver problem for Europe than it is than it is for us, number one. Uh, number two, uh, the treaty, even as written now, and the Russians concede this, is does not adequately cover new technology uh, like hypersonic cruise missiles, which are, in many respects, a graver threat than ballistic missiles. They're much harder to defend against, given the kind of trajectory they follow. And number three, and this really is a huge strategic question, by definition, New START doesn't cover China. Now, the Chinese say, oh, but our nuclear capability is so much smaller than Russia and the United States, we shouldn't be included, which is a way of saying, let us build up to have as many nuclear weapons as you have, and then we'll be happy to talk to you. That That's not acceptable. Now, you know, I'm not saying that- uh, Well, you got to start uh, somewhere though, right? I mean, if you extend the exactly START treaty right. and then you bring the numbers down, and we've, we've come down from tens of thousands of weapons down to about 1,500 nuclear warheads per side, you bring them d down a bit lower and then- China is brought into that agreement, but to abandon START, I mean, a lot of people will argue against that. But. Well, I wasn't saying we abandoned it. I just think this treaty is flawed. Uh, I negotiated the Treaty of Moscow in 2002, which reduced uh, deployed nuclear warheads to a, to a range of 17 to 2200 between Russia and the United States. So I've negotiated my share of arms control agreements, but they've got to be good arms control agreements. And as I've described, I think New START is flawed. Putin played Trump, you you say in the book. Yeah. What, what, look, what was the leverage? I, or what, what was his what what was his spell over President Trump? Well, I don't think it was a spell. I think it was his his knowledge and his uh, willpower and his uh, clear understanding of Russian national interest. I first met Putin in October of 2001 when I went with Rumsfeld after the attack at 9-11 to get some Russian help to go into Afghanistan. And I've watched Such him different days, Ambassador Bolton, when the relations were a lot better. But go ahead. A lot, a lot different. Absolutely. And uh, but I've watched him over the years. I've met with him myself several times. He's a tough, knowledgeable, clear minded adversary. And to put him on one side of the table and Donald Trump on the other filled me with fear each time I saw it. Why didn't President Trump really come out and condemn Alexei Navalny's poisoning, do you think? Well, I think he wasn't sure the Russians did it. I think, uh, you know, he has, Trump has this kind of moral equivalency when it comes to some of these authoritarian countries. Uh, he once said, uh, you think we're so great when somebody complained about Russian uh, uh, atrocities. Uh, and I, I just, uh, it's a its a blind spot that he had uh, that colored his relations with uh, authoritarians like Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, not just Vladimir Putin. Can I just talk to you quickly about Afghanistan? I mean, you make the point in the in the book that uh, Trump wanted to de to deliver on that promise to end endless wars in faraway places, you know, that probably Americans don't understand. I think it's probably the one war they did understand after 9-11, Al-Qaeda working with Taliban, Osama bin Laden was there. To simply withdraw now 
after so much blood has been invested there, so much energy to stand up an Afghan government, while the Taliban still have links to Al-Qaeda, I'm answering my own question and I apologize, where it's not condition-based and to pull the last remaining 5,500 troops out of Afghanistan, do you support that? No, absolutely not. Look, these numbers uh, of troops that will be left, 2,500 each in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, have no military significance, whatever. They're purely arbitrary figures. Uh, and it's just done for Trump to prove a point. Uh, I think uh, properly explained to the American people, they will appreciate that keeping a presence in a place like Afghanistan to deal with terrorism, to watch the two nuclear powers on either side of Afghanistan, Iran on the west, Pakistan on the east, makes perfectly good sense that we can have our troops deployed in, in a zone of danger far from America for a long time because it makes America safer. If you explain that to people, I believe they will accept it. The problem is not under Trump and frankly, not under Obama uh, did, did they get that explanation. That, that's why we need new leaders who can explain why a strong American position in the world is necessary for our security at home. Last question to you. Is there a way back? I mean, Watching all of this from Europe, I mean, I, I'm sure it's dizzying in America, but to even watch it from Europe and from afar, that the American democracy would get to the point where it is now, the delegitimization of the election by the president. Is this the new normal or is there a way back somehow from all of this? I, I definitely don't think it's the new normal. I think Trump is an aberration. He's an anomaly. He's caused significant damage. Uh, to the country uh, internally and internationally. Uh, but I think it's fixable, and I think it's actually fixable fairly quickly. I, I Look, I, I voted against uh, uh, Trump. I didn't vote for Biden either, but I voted against the Republican nominee for president for the first time in my life because I feared that eight years of Trump might make the damage irreparable. But I'm, I'm confident we can fix it, and I don't think anybody should draw uh, large conclusions from four years of Donald Trump. I think he's totally su sui generis. Ambassador John Bolton, great to talk to you, sir. Thanks so much for your insight. Thanks for having me. And that's our backstory on John Bolton's view in and out of the White House. Bolton will be forever criticized for not coming forward and testifying during the impeachment hearings against Trump. He thought the hearings were a partisan political exercise. Democrats argued the court fight to get Bolton to be a witness would be a waste of time. They said they needed to move forward with Trump's impeachment now because it dealt with foreign interference in the presidential election, and another election was less than a year away. They never subpoenaed John Bolton. He could have been called to testify at the trial in the Senate. But a Republican-controlled Senate knew Bolton would tie Trump to holding up Ukraine's military aid until the government in Kiev would do him a political favor by digging up dirt on Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. And Bolton wrote just that in his book. Trump attempted to act against a foreign power for political gain, against the interests of America. Once again, the president acted in his own selfish interest the country came last in Trump world. I'm Dana Lewis. Thanks for listening and subscribe to our podcast. And I'll talk to you again soon.